Shamirachim, if you read the comments sometimes that are posted on these sites, I don't think people are looking to be cruel, but they feel this is all of a sudden just a forum that they can say whatever they want. And these same people, I'm sure they would never go to a, a shiva house and say these things to the Avelim. And yet the Avelim are likely reading this. And you can figure out that they're reading this. And yet these same people who I'm sure wouldn't say that face to face and would never want to inflict that kind of pain are somehow able to say things that they really should be putting it through the process of, well, would I say this face to face to a person who is going through this situation? And I think the answer, if they thought that way, would be very clear. But for some reason, it doesn't occur to people writing in this context. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. When my friend Dina Rabhan and I spoke in episode 132, we surveyed the social media landscape and talked about some of the opportunities and dangers associated with social media. As I said in the introduction to that episode, the idea that the way we receive information is likely more important and influential than the information itself is now truer than ever. Because of social media, our world has changed far more than we realize. For Orthodox Jews, who have lived behind literal and symbolic walls for the past 2,000 years, the change is one that may completely upend the way we understand the world at large and even the Torah itself. Some communities have responded by rejecting everything associated with the new media landscape, or at least they're trying. Others welcome it with open arms and perhaps throw all caution to the wind. An important issue raised by our increased reliance on social media is the question of what it's doing to the quality of our discourse. I'm referring to the things we say and the way we say them. It seems that, in many ways, a willingness to engage in casual cruelty has emerged along with the social media revolution. And this has a serious effect on the way we live our lives away from our screens. And of course, it raises many issues regarding the halachic propriety of the way we write and the way we talk. Is it a violation of Jewish law to write intemperate or mean comments on a social media post? How can we try to affect change in society without falling into a problem of Lashon Hara? How may I express disagreement, and when is it right to reveal something on social media rather than hiding it? How should I relate to great scholars who also express disagreement by disparaging their opponents? Can I try to right or wrong by trashing someone on Facebook in a post that will be read by people who have no need to know about what happened? And the questions transcend social media alone. When and how should we reveal damaging information that's important, such as before a shidduch? How can we teach a proper type of Shmirat HaLashon without also giving kids the unintended message that we don't want them to tell us about things that happen to them, like, God forbid, abuse? Is there a way for a journalist to do his job and also follow the rules of Lashon Hara? These are all very important topics, and I'm grateful to my friend Rabbi David Fine for suggesting that the Orthodox Conundrum address them and for recommending that I speak to Rabbi Daniel Feldman, Rosh Yeshiva at the Rabbi Isaac Lachanan Theological Seminary at Yeshiva University. We'll get to the conversation in a moment. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. We also have started the Orthodox Conundrum YouTube channel, and this episode will be available there as well. 
The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in somebody's honor or memory. If you would like to reach thousands of listeners every week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, effective, and entertaining podcast. Rabbi Daniel Z. Feldman is a Rosh Yeshiva at the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary at Yeshiva University, as well as an instructor in the Sai Sim School of Business, and has taught for the Wurzweiler School of Social Work and the Katz School of Continuing Education. He also serves as the executive editor of the REITS Initiative of YU Press. He is an alumnus of Yeshivat Kerem Biavne and received his ordination, Yorah Yorah and Yadin Yadin, from the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary, where he was a fellow of the Bella and Harry Wexner Kolel El Yon. Rabbi Feldman is the author of The Right and the Good, Halacha and Human Relations, Divine Footsteps, Chesed and the Jewish Soul, False Facts and True Rumors, Lashon Hara in Contemporary Culture, as well as five volumes of Talmudic essays entitled Binah Basfarim. The most recent volumes deal with Hanukkah and the obligation to honor one's parents. Rabbi Feldman is the co-editor of more than 10 volumes of Talmudic essays in Jewish thought and serves on the editorial board of tradition and has also written for publications such as Jewish Action, the Orthodox Forum, and the Orthodox Handbook of Judaism and Economics. He is a frequent lecturer in locations across America and abroad. Rabbi Feldman is the spiritual leader of Orsadia of Teaneck, New Jersey, where he resides with his wife, Leah, and their children. Rabbi Daniel Feldman, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Back in October, we released episode 132, which was entitled The New World of Social Media and What It Means for Orthodox Jews with our friend Dina Rabhan. That was a discussion about some of the positive directions that social media can go, but we also know that it can be a serious negative and have negative consequences for a lot of people. We're going to get into that in some depth, but Rabbi Feldman, in order to start off, I actually want to open with a macro issue about the meaning of truth and the importance of truth, because we do know that it says in Parsha Mishpatim, Midvar Sheker Tirchak, distance yourself from lies. It says in Parsha Kedoshim, Mito, a person should not lie against his fellow. And on the other hand, the laws of Lashon Hara, of tailmongering, are very clear that it doesn't matter if it's true. That is not a reason to say something if it's derogatory. We even see in the well-known Rashi in Parsha Falyera that Sarah laughed to herself, disbelieving that she could have a child because her husband was old. And Rashi says that Hashem told Avraham when relating the story that she said, I'm old, so that's not to cause a problem with Shalom Bayis. So obviously truth isn't the ideal top value, but we can't discount it either. So I'm opening with this big question. How important is truth? Truth is hugely important, believe it or not. It is the seal of God, according to the Gemara. And it is probably in a lot of ways a primary value. And the truth is, I'm not sure, the truth is, I'm not sure if those sources 
call it into question as much as it seems. Uh, if anything, I'd say the second one, the reference to the Rashi, which comes from the Gemara Nivamos, that kind of more explicitly contrasts truth with other values, contrasting truth with Shalom. So there we do find them posed against each other, and there's quite an extensive discussion of this, to which value takes precedence, and whether that's about a values clash, or whether that's about something else. But I think also in that context, it's not so much about falsehood or devaluing truth. It's about seeing where things fit in. And it's more about a lack of full disclosure. And the assumption that there should always be full disclosure is maybe itself not necessarily the case. And it's also noteworthy that even in those Gemaras where we are contrasting Shalom and Emes in a sense, but the language of the Gemara isn't that one's allowed to lie, it's a Lishaker. The language of the Gemara there is Lishanos, to kind of fudge things and maybe to leave things out the way the Rambam formulates it, Lahosif, Ligroa, to add a little bit, to take a little bit away. And that might be deliberate. There's a discussion in the postgame as to just why the language is like that. Say it could be that blatant lies are permitted for the sake of Shalom, but it also might be that the language is deliberately a little bit more guarded than that. And uh, the question, if we're really throwing truth out the window there, I'm not sure if that's necessarily the message. I think it's that we should recognize just how things come across and that Shalom may be so important that in areas where there aren't really long-term consequences for the lack of disclosure, and there isn't necessarily a loss that's happening to others. Rabbi Yona, for example, is very limited in his description of just what kind of falsehoods would be permitted for the sake of Shalom without going into all the details. So I'm not sure if that necessarily throws truth out the window. But also, when it comes to Lashon Hara, I think that it's a little bit oversimplified, the idea that there's a prohibition to say things that are true. It is technically the case, but the idea that Lashon Hara is true and Moti Shemer is false, I think that gets a little bit too much emphasis and maybe a little bit of a distorting way that assuming that that's the, the distinction that we use, which really comes from later sources, sounds like it from the Rambam and the Chafetz Chaim, it's not clear if the Gemara really uses that language. It sounds like from a lot of Gemaras that Lashon Hara actually at least involves falsehood. And I think that that's a major part of what we're dealing with, that Lashon Hara, even if it's grounded in something factual, and if we want to draw the contrast that Mosley Shemra is maybe completely fabricated, while Lashon Hara has some connection to facts, but the picture that's painted is not true. And I think that's going to run through a lot of the details and a lot of the cases of Lashon Hara, that you might be coming from something that is grounded in something factual, but the message that's being presented is not necessarily accurate or complete or fair or true in any other sense of the word. And it's noteworthy that the Mephoshim have to figure out is a prohibition of being Mechabel Lashonhara, which would be even harder to accept that idea than speaking Lashonhara. It's one thing to say that we can't speak refers to what we're not allowed to accept and to believe. So to say we can't believe the truth is an even harder concept to wrap our heads around than to say you can't speak the truth. So it probably reflects the fact that there's more to the story than what you're hearing. And it's noteworthy that the Pasuk that the Gemara uses to tell us about a prohibition of Kabbalah Lashon Hara, Losisa Shema Shav, every word of that is a little hard to translate, but it's the whole sheer in itself, but you shouldn't uplift or accept a report that is Shav. So Shav normally is translated as useless or unnecessary, but Rashi and Unklis on that Pasuk say Sheker. So the idea that the Pasuk that the Gemara identifies as the source or Kabbalah slash Hara, is translated, according to Rashi and Unkelis, as do not accept a false report. 
So there is some notion that even if there's a connection to the truth, what's coming out is false and what is being transmitted is false. So I'm not sure if either of these dinim that you're starting with are anti-truth dinim as much as kind of larger picture truth dinim. This sounds like it's going against the commonly accepted understanding of what Lashon Hara is based on Sefer Chavetz Chaim. Are you saying that the Chavetz Chaim's presentation of it perhaps emphasizes an element that you're not emphasizing as much? Or is it that I misunderstood Sefer Chavetz Chaim, which I understand is quite possible? Because when I learned Sefer Chavetz Chaim, I understood much more that it was a matter of Moti Shemra is false, Lashon Hara is true. Was I oversimplifying or are you saying it's broader than the Chavetz Chaim presents? Well, I wouldn't be arrogant enough to take on either of you, so I wouldn't say that you're oversimplifying <laughs> or certainly wouldn't disagree with the Chafetz Chaim, but I think the way it sometimes comes across culturally is a little bit oversimplified. And the language, the Rambam, really is where that distinction comes from. The Stechemet has a discussion whether there's any real source for from Chazal, because Chazal don't seem to use the language the same way. It sounds more like uh, Lashon Hara is more of an umbrella term in the Gemara. It sounds like Rechilis is more of an umbrella term in the Gemara. So it's not clear that that is actually the distinction Chazal use, and there are a lot of Gemaras that really sound like Lashon Hara certainly at least includes or involves a lot of falsehood. So I think it's maybe oversimplified and overemphasized, wouldn't say necessarily by you or the Chavaz Chaim, but to give a, an example, sometimes you hear children in school because luckily this is a principle that we try to convey from the earliest ages, but it does get perhaps a, a little bit misunderstood. And so sometimes you'll hear kids arguing with each other and one will accuse the other of speaking Lashon Hara and the other one will say, oh, you just admitted it's true because if it was false, you would have said Motsi Shemra. So ha ha, you just confessed. So I don't think it's like that. I don't think that the idea is that Lashon Hara was meant by anyone to convey complete truth and the actual total reality. And the language of the Rambam and the Chafetz Chaim, the idea of Hamagana Eschavero, something along those lines, that you're disparaging somebody with factual things. So you're using facts for the disparagement. And in practice, that does mean that sometimes we're talking about straight revelation of factual ideas. And I think there are a lot of reasons why that would be included in the prohibition. So yes, as a matter of practice, we do often mean that simply relaying a fact could be Lashon Hara. But I think the reasoning behind it is because the impact is going to be disproportionate or the picture that's being painted is going to not really be accurate. There's going to be some falsehood in there. And I think that's a lot of the reason why we have this prohibition. I think that's such an important distinction. And part of it is because of, and I do want to get to social media, but I still want to mention this other idea. One of the issues that I hear often mentioned as a negative consequence of what is generally a positive thing, the emphasis on avoiding Lashon Hara, is that we're teaching children at times, for example, not to say things when they need to speak up, that I can't say that Shalom, I was abused because that would be Lashon Hara or other permutations of that problem. We're telling people that you can't say something about a Shidduch, even if we know technically I'm allowed, but maybe it's Lashon Hara, and therefore it can lead to all sorts of problems later on and horrible consequences. From what you're saying, Rabbi Fel, and it sounds like that's not only a misguided emphasis in the wrong place, but perhaps not even accurate, I'll pee the laws of Lashon Hara. Is that right? Yeah, I don't think it's close to accurate as far as the laws of Lashon Hara. And in general, in practice, unfortunately, not to speak Lashon Hara about everybody, but people tend to do the exact opposite of what they're supposed to do in Hilchus Lashon Hara, that they're very ready to say things that are not appropriate and have no need to be said. And then when there are consequences that need to be 
figured out and need to be protected. So then everyone's all of a sudden very careful. They don't want to share a shidduch. They don't want to say anything that could cause any problems, but that's actually what needs to happen. So the tendency very often is to do the exact opposite of what the halacha here requires. And there was one of the Rabbanim in Vilna who wrote a sefer called Piskei Tshuva on Arachayim, and he writes that everyone gets all worked up about what they're not supposed to say, and they should get equally worked up about failing to say what they need to say, and that that's a problem in society. I wasn't able to peg historically whether when he said everyone gets all worked up about it, whether that was before or after the Sefer Chafetz Chaim came out. So I don't know if he meant that everyone has this attitude specifically because the Sefer had such an impact, or that was the case beforehand. Actually, we should note that this is, I think, the 150th anniversary of when the Chafetz Chaim was published. So it's had a, a tremendous impact. And the fact that there is a, a balance there is crucial. So certainly when something is dangerous, when somebody poses potential harm to someone, so then the obligation of toeles, that comes from a Pasuk in this week's Parsha, just like Lashon Hara comes from a Pasuk in this week's Parsha, it comes from the same Pasuk in this week's Parsha, which maybe is an indication that there's the balance there, but the idea of Losamar al-Damriacha, that we're not allowed to be passive when there's potential harm, is the same Pasuk as Loselech Rachel. So certainly the idea that there's some kind of balance there is perhaps being conveyed directly by the Torah itself in reference to how we teach children. So it's difficult because there is a, a challenge how to convey something that is nuanced and maybe it depends a little bit on the age, but there was a very controversial tshuva of Rav Moshe Feinstein, which started a whole firestorm at the time. And then he doubled down with a firestorm since then. So he wrote that a teacher should not try to elicit information from a child about other students because you're teaching them Lashon Hara. And there were others who thought that that is going to miss the point. Then maybe there's something that needs to be taken care of. And part of Hilchus Lashon Hara is Toelis. And if the teacher needs to have that information to address something that's going on, then he should be able to teach the students that Lashon Hara includes a rule of Toelis. So that was a source of great controversy, which rages Ahiyom Hazeh. There's a lot of different perspectives. And presumably, Elu Elu, it probably depends very much on the circumstances and the age of the children and how it's able to be conveyed and how necessary it is and where that balance is, because sometimes children won't necessarily understand and sometimes they will. And that's a part of it. And it's interesting, you can draw a parallel from that other din that you mentioned, so, yes, we're allowed to not be fully forthcoming if it's going to cause a fight or hurt someone's feelings. So sometimes, say somebody calls the house and you don't want to come to the phone, so your wife says you're not here. So presumably that's okay. It's not a, a terrible shekher, and that's going to save the other person from being offended. But uh, Rav Shlomo Zalman wrote, and uh, my late Rebbe, Rabbi Aaron Levine, Zachon Levrach, emphasized that that might be true that it's okay for your wife to say that you're not here, but it's not okay for your five-year-old son to say you're not here because he's not going to understand that this is one of those situations where it's justified. And all he'll understand, the only takeaway he'll get is that, okay, you can lie when you need to. So an adult may understand that balance and see how it fits in, but it is possible that children maybe need sometimes a less complicated message. So it's part of a whole picture that has to be factored in carefully and balanced. I want to ask you, Rabbi Feldman, about what you just said in terms of everybody, or again, not to speak less than our about Klai Yisrael, but everyone getting it backwards, generally, people speaking about the things they shouldn't say and then being quiet about the things that they should say. Could we use Shidduchim as an example? And I realize this is a very broad question again, but could you possibly give some practical advice, practical advice of how to navigate determining what is relevant, what is the toilet, and what is irrelevant and shouldn't be mentioned? That's always, it seems very difficult to navigate that particular idea, in particular with Shidduchim, I think. 
Yeah, and I won't pretend it's easy. And so it, it sounds glib to say everyone does the opposite of what they should as if it's a clear path. It's not easy, but there are some points that we can identify, and I think there are some ways. And I get shiduchim calls a lot and teaching and, and rabbinating. So it's something that I certainly have a, a lot of experience with and have certain passion about how it should be done or shouldn't be done. So there are, not to say again that it's at all simple because there are many, many gray areas and many situations where major situations are on the line and to know exactly how to handle it is very complicated. But broadly speaking, certainly if somebody is potentially dangerous, then there's no question that has to be revealed. And also, if you have reason to believe that there's going to be a fundamental incompatibility, a real clash in values, really things that don't allow the two people to have any kind of harmony together. So that is going to be an area where we need to be forthcoming about that. But some of the ways in which we say things in the area of Shiduchim that are not appropriate, that are not helpful, is nowadays, so this is what I see with yeshiva guys all the time, so they'll ask their friends about a suggestion, and their friends will say, I don't see it. And I don't see it. I don't see you getting along. And that I always emphasize. When your friend says, I don't see it, you should ask them, did this come in a chazon, in a mara? What kind of a nevua did this come in? Because if you were to ask all the happily married people, how many of them, their friends saw it, were able to predict that they would be so happily married? More than 50%, I think, would say no. So the idea that somebody has some kind of an ability to assess how people will get along beyond major issues of incompatibility, but just, I don't see this personality getting along with that personality. I think that's real lesson higher. That's real harmful speech. And I also think that people shouldn't be assessing the attractiveness of other people on behalf of another one and saying, oh yeah, I don't think this person is attractive. I think that is dictionary definition of Lashon Hara. There you are saying something that's completely subjective and that has no objective truth to it. And the parties can decide for themselves. And by saying that, you often can plant a seed in somebody's mind that they're just going to not be interested or they're going to form their opinion based on your opinion. I think that's textbook Lashon Hara. There it causes massive harm. You could prevent somebody from ever meeting another who might be perfect for them. And it doesn't have a basis in objective truth. It doesn't have a basic in reality. That's just the opinion of a third party, which should be completely irrelevant. Then let me ask you again, I do want to get to social media, but there's so much to discuss here. Always more than hard to say. <laughs> when I was in college, my sister used to run a group on Friday nights for women to study, young women to study Lashonara. They used to say, okay, women's Lashonara and the Ezra's Nashim. What about a situation where, and I realize we're getting into some very specific details over here, I heard something. This is not an objective truth. It's also not necessarily false. It might be completely false, but it might be true. I once heard something that would be a real problem. I once, you know, there's a rumor about that person. Rumors, I guess, is the general question I'm asking about. When it is the toilet, but it remains a rumor. What does one do about a case like that? So one has to be very, very careful because rumors do have some significance in halacha. It depends on what the rumor is. And it takes a lot of careful judgment to assess just the weight of a quote-unquote rumor. And... Ideally, one would not be reported rumors without firsthand knowledge. And the Chafetz Chaim had a list of conditions for how to proceed with something that's toelis. The list was controversial. There were those who disagreed, and some of the details in particular evoked some kind of controversy, especially because of the central issue that if somebody really potentially is dangerous, so then being too machmir on the list is going to come at a real cost to someone else. So there is a lot of debate as to how exactly to calibrate this list. So ideally, one would only report things that they know firsthand or with a strong degree of confidence. And 
if that's possible, so then that would be the way to do it. But if there is a real possibility that there is some truth to what's being said and it is of significant harm, so then one is in a tricky position. So to do whatever is possible to assess the truth or maybe to delay things a little bit while the truth is being figured out or to recognize if you can convey it with the proper level of suffix that it takes and say that this is not verified, but maybe look out for this. That takes a lot to be able to convey it effectively because certainly anyone who hears this before they've met the person is going to be very discouraged if there's any kind of suffix race, which is a big part of it. Also, tiny makes a big difference in terms of the area of shiduchim specifically and when they should be, when aspects should be revealed. And that plays a major part in the whole decision, especially when something is not 100% clear. So sometimes you can buy some time and you can say that something you need to look into a little bit, but it sounds like a good idea to, to meet this person. And sometimes you can do it behind the scenes. There's all kinds of nuances and there's all kinds of details. Like I said, I don't want to pretend this is simple. When I say that everyone does the opposite, it's not simple. Those situations are particularly complicated, but there's a, a way to create an approach to it. There's a way to know how to evaluate and how to present, and timing is a huge factor. Okay, well, that's very helpful. Thank you. Let's move into the realm of social media, which is such an important part of so many people's lives today, and social media has done lots of good and continues to do lots of good. There are many wonderful things that happen on social media, and there's a lot of bad things that happen on social media also where people, frankly, trash each other. My opening question about social media really is, is there a way to figure out where the line is drawn? between respectful dialogue and improper forbidden speech, because the nature of social media, particularly on platforms like Twitter, is that you have to say something pithy and quick, and you get your point across if you can say it in a very unnuanced way. In some situations, that could be a good thing. In many situations, it means that you're oversimplifying. It means that you're usually being cruel in that context, because it's easier to knock somebody down, and it can be very difficult. So could you give some advice or practical considerations of where that line is drawn between improper and proper speech on social media. So drawing a precise line is always going to be challenging, but I think it's important to note, as you did at the outset about Twitter, that it's really a question of what every format encourages and what it makes more likely. And that's a question that's applicable to the internet as a whole, to social media as a whole. Various platforms have different aspects to them that also, like you were highlighting about Twitter. So being aware to that reality and being sensitive to the possible impact of one format over the other is very helpful as far as understanding just how to navigate this terrain. It's interesting, the Gemara has an opinion that it's not considered Lashon Hara if you're speaking in the presence of the person, which may not be acceptable. Halacha is a big debate as to how to relate to that. And the Gemara has another line, which is more acceptable halacha, except we're not sure how to interpret it, that it's not considered Lashon Hara if something is known to three or more, something is on the way to becoming public knowledge. So there's a big debate about the practicalities of either of those principles. But I think there's a very illuminating comment of Tosus on the side of the page of the Gemara and interpreting both of those concepts, Tosus assumed that actually the person speaking, trying to say something positive, but there's the potential that it may be interpreted differently. They're saying something ambiguous. And therefore, the Gemara is telling us that if it's being said in public or it's being said in the presence of the person you're speaking about, so then it's safer because we could assume that even though people tend to be nasty sometimes and people will occasionally say things that are not nice, 
but they wouldn't do that if the person's sitting right there. They wouldn't do that if a large group is going to find out about it. So if those contexts are there, you can assume that it's intended positively. So if you think about that comment, and now fast forward to 2023, and our conversations are happening not just in front of three people, but they're happening on the World Wide Web. It's Ape, not Ape Tlasa, it's Ape Billion, or however many are on the internet. And the person you're speaking about is certainly going to hear about it. So Tosis's assumption that once upon a time, people, maybe they'll be nasty sometimes, but not if too many people are going to hear or not if the person they're talking about is listening. So to think, is that still true? <laughs> is that still our expectation? So clearly it isn't. Clearly something has very much changed about how we communicate. So to be sensitive to that, to be aware that we're functioning in a different environment in a different reality, and the challenges are much greater, and certainly the potential for harm is so much greater because the message spreads so much faster and lasts forever and can't be taken away. So whatever we were concerned about hundreds of years ago, we should be much more concerned about today. So it doesn't mean to avoid the internet or social media. And certainly very much agree with you about all of the wonderful potential. Personally, I'm a big fan of Wayu Torah and many other things that are able to bring a lot of positivity to the world, a lot of Torah, a lot of chesed, a lot of interconnectedness, a lot of empathy. And it's also not only the sweet things and the nice things, but sometimes negative things also need to be conveyed and the internet and social media can play an important role for that purpose. So there's tremendous benefit it, but we have to be aware of just how the reality is different than it was when Tosus wrote this, whatever, 800 years ago, but it's different than it was 80 years ago, and it's different than it was 20 years ago, and our whole culture has been shifted, and to be aware of that, both as one who is conveying information and one who is receiving information, that's something that needs to be at the forefront of our consciousness, and we need to be awake to those challenges and to know just how that could impact us. When you mention empathy, that makes me think about not only the Lashon Hara that's on in the classic sense of revealing something that someone may not want people to know about, but the nature of the conversation, the cruelty, the casual cruelty, in fact, that's bandied about almost with complete indifference. It seems that people will, again, to make that quick point, say things about other people in a way that maybe even using Tosfos Chazaka or whatever whatever kind of a psychological insight they were using, you might not want to say in front of a person, but when there is a barrier of a screen, as opposed to actually speaking to the person in person, maybe people are more willing and people will say, wow, this is the stupidest thing I ever heard. Now, that I wouldn't call that classic Lashahara, but it's certainly not nice. It's a type of cruelty. I want to ask you from a halakhic perspective, is there actually any prohibition in that sort of speaking? Because anecdotally, it seems to me that that is becoming more and more prevalent, of course, on social media, but even in the religious world. It seems to be that people don't mind disagreeing, not just by saying, I think this is incorrect, but by saying, I think this is stupid, I think that this is foolish, I think the person is stupid, in ways which would be perhaps not Lashon Hara, but just mean. What do you say about that halakhically? Well, I think a lot of the situations that would be Lashon Hara, but before getting into that, so certainly there is a tremendous guidance that needs to be adopted as far as how we speak. And there's no question that the format does lend itself to altering that in very negative ways. So certainly if there's anonymity involved, so there's no question that that has a tremendous impact on what we do. That was something that Plato already talked about, that what would be the effect of people's morality on people's morality if they felt that they couldn't be seen, if they could have a ring of invisibility, so they could just do whatever they wanted to and nobody else would know. So would they be able to be counted on to continue to be moral? And that was a question raised then. And it's certainly true now that if one feels that they are 
insulated from all consequences. So then everything comes out. But it's not only because they may be invulnerable, because they may be untouchable, because no one knows who they are, but there are other psychological aspects that contribute to that. So there's an idea that's called a de-individuation, that people are separated from their actual character sometimes in some of these settings, and especially if they feel anonymous, whether or not they actually are anonymous. But even if they just feel that they're not connecting to the other person, they sometimes lose touch with their values. And that's very much a possibility. And the psychologists have documented what they call the online disinhibition effect. The idea that when you are separated by a screen, even if you're not anonymous, but you are separated by a screen and uh, in your pajamas in your mother's basement and you're typing. So then you just don't connect to the person who you are writing about and doesn't have to be that you're anonymous. It's just that lack of connection and empathy does come a lot from getting direct feedback from seeing how people are responding to what you're saying, seeing the facial expressions and being disconnected from that does very much turn down the setting on our empathy, on our awareness. And certainly over time, that has an effect on our character overall. So that is something to be very aware of. And it doesn't just come from cruelty. I think sometimes people are able to be more intense and so let a certain cruelty come out when they are protected by this kind of a environment and this kind of a network but it's not even necessarily conscious and i think one way to see it if you look at some of the from news sites look at some of the jewish news sites and unfortunately too often the rahman they're reporting on a tragedy of some kind unfortunately and if you read the comments shami rachim if you read the comments sometimes that are posted on these sites that I don't think people are looking to be cruel, but they feel this is all of a sudden just a forum that they can say whatever they want. And these same people, I'm sure they would never go to a, a shiva house and say these things to the Avelim. And yet the Avelim are likely reading this. And you can figure out that they're reading this. And yet these same people who I'm sure wouldn't say that face to face and would never want to inflict that kind of pain are somehow able to say things that... They really should be putting it through the process of, well, would I say this face-to-face to a person who is going through this situation? And I think the answer, if they thought that way, would be very clear. But for some reason, it doesn't occur to people writing in this context. So I don't know if that's necessarily coming from cruelty. It may come from an empathy getting turned off or a lack of awareness of just how our world is interconnected in that way. And so whether or not it's Lashon Hara, I think sometimes it's Lashon Hara, but there's a very severe prohibition of Onas Devarim. And the Torah tells us really in stark terms, but the Gemara expands on it in starker terms, that to say things that cause emotional pain, to cause anguish, certainly if it's unnecessary, is a very serious prohibition. I uh, don't want to cause emotional anguish by quoting all the lines that the Gemara says about it, but it's pretty intense. You know, it's interesting, Rabbi Feldman, when you said that people become habituated and you were primarily talking about the people who write in the comments and say very unpleasant and cruel things. And in person, you suggest they would never say that. I'm sure that's true for many, if not most people, but perhaps I'm more pessimistic. I think, and I think we saw this, for example, over the past three years with COVID and perhaps with certain political developments that have taken place. It seems to me, and I don't know if it's a direct consequence of the way people act on social media and becoming habituated to that sort of speech. But it seems to me that people now are more willing to speak their minds in ways which uh, avoid a filter, we should say, perhaps, in ways that weren't necessarily true when I was a kid. At least I didn't see it that way. And I think that it may be a consequence of being able to say whatever you want in your basement, in your pajamas, 
and then all of a sudden you forget that life isn't necessarily like that. I'm not sure that you agree with me, but I think it might be coming out of the world of social media and becoming part of the way that discourse just takes place in the world today. Oh, there's no question that there's a loop. And whenever we deal with something that is Midos connected in Lashon Hara, it's certainly that. So the assumption is that there is a loop and that every action reinforces a mindset. And then that mindset then leads to more actions of that type for good and for bad. So when it comes to chesed, certainly we find that literature telling us that we engage in chesed to help people, but we also engage in chesed to create a godlike personality who's going to be more likely to help people. So everything reinforces itself. So there's no question that if you act a certain way in one context, it's going to carry over and it's going to build on itself. So certainly it is very likely that the face-to-face contact is going to be impacted by how people train themselves to think and to act in non-face-to-face settings. So there's no question that that's got a lot of foundation to it and certainly a lot of reality to it. One of the things that bothers me, though, is that when speaking about this as a sort of modern phenomenon, and you mentioned Onat Devarim as the prohibition, which doesn't allow us to speak in cruel ways, if you look at some of the works of the Rishonim, the Achronim, some of our great scholars, the way they spoke about each other, I realize context is key, but you read some of the things they say, some of them were very kind, and there were some who were, I'm not sure how to put it, except to say they didn't speak kindly about people with whom they disagree. They could say, oh, that is ridiculous, and whatever they said, is it possible some people could say, I mean, I'm speaking cruelly, but frankly, I'm just listening to what the Rishonim did. I'm just listening to what the Achronim did. And I'm no different than they are. If they could do it, why can't I? How would you respond to that? I'd say it's pretty impressive if you're really no different than the Rishonim. If that follows through in every other area, that'd be pretty impressive. But to your point specifically, if you read the Sefer Chavetz Chaim, so in the back, he published the Tshuva from the Chavetz Yar, which addresses that question, because certainly, clearly, it's not a new question, and how to relate to some of the language we find from the time of the Gemara through the Rishonim and later, certainly does raise question marks. And the Chavetz Yar has that Tshuva where he tells us how to uh, relate to each one of those passages. So some of it is context. Some of it is cultural context that things won't necessarily be taken the same way. And I think we've certainly seen just in our American culture in the past few years, there's a whole different way of relating to language for good and for bad. And there's no question that in different cultures and different times and in different contexts, things are taken in ways that don't necessarily match up. So some of the phrases, as the Chavasiyar taught, need to be interpreted a little differently. Some of them have to do with context. Some personalities are able to be very mission-focused, and they're not going to take anything personally, and perhaps there is an understanding that that's indeed the case. Occasionally, when something is so serious, there may be a need to just go right to the core of the matter and not necessarily focus as much on some of the consequences. Who knows when that is, but that's theoretically true. But as a general rule of thumb, what I would say here is that, in general, we learn halacha and we learn practices from dinim and from maiserav and from stories. So ideally, they're going to complement each other, and they're going to present a picture that we can and relate to in an integrated way. But sometimes there'll be things that are hard to understand and require a little more thinking. So then I would say we start with the din. So we know we're not supposed to be offensive. And then we have this Gemara that sounds like someone was talking in an offensive way. So it's a kasha. So we need to find the answer. But how should we behave? So we start with the din. We know that we're not supposed to inflict emotional pain. And then we have to figure out, is there a way to understand how the story is reconciled with the din? But it certainly seems to be a more reasonable approach to start with the din on the paper. And then if I have a kasha, that may take me down a path that's very dangerous. Before acting on that, let's leave it as a kasha and then try to resolve it with a little bit more wisdom. I think that makes a lot of sense. That's a very reasonable approach, if I can say so. I'd like to ask you about 
the pasuk lo telech rachel be'amecha and some consequences that come out of that particular source. At the beginning of Sefer Chavetz Chaim, the Chavetz Chaim lists 17 different potential prohibitions when somebody speaks Lashon Hara, and another 14 potential positive mitzvot a person can violate by speaking Lashon Hara. The very first of all the prohibitions is lo telech rachil be'amecha, a talebearer should not walk in your people, in your nation. And as I understand it, that word be'amecha in your nation refers specifically to somebody who is like you, someone who is a religious Jew, someone who follows the mitzvot. And that reality can open up all sorts of justifications for Lashon Hara. Someone can say, well, of course, I would never speak Lashon Hara about a good person, but this person is a bad person. This person is an evil person. For example, that person is a COVID denier. How could a COVID denier be a good person? He's clearly violating the Torah. Now, I certainly agree that one should not be a COVID denier, but at the same time, I could then use it as a justification to say whatever I want about that person because the laws of Lashon Hara don't apply to him. From his perspective, he's trying to save the world, and the reverse is true as well. The reverse is true as well. He can look at me, someone who says COVID is real, and says, he is destroying the world, he's killing people, and speak whatever he wants about me. We can think of many, many examples where saying somebody's outside the fold becomes a license to speak about them. There's a lot to say about that. So first, to think about it in a meta kind of way, and a broad picture kind of way, or a macro way, so... It certainly seems to be the reality, and it's certainly possible that one can relate to the whole corpus of Hilchos Ben Adam and say, well, everyone to the left of me is a mummer, and everyone besides me and my Rosh Hashiv is an Apikoros. So basically, Hilchos Ben Adam doesn't apply to anyone besides me and my Rebbe. So clearly, we can see what kind of a society that's going to create. So just thinking broad picture, how likely is it that that half of the Torah is so limited that in our application, it can essentially be discounted for huge swaths of the population. So would we relate to that in any other area? If in Hilchus Shabbos or in Hilchus Kashrus, there was some kind of a way of interpreting things that made it almost irrelevant in almost all cases, I don't think we would think that that makes sense. And sometimes you can almost make an argument and it clearly doesn't play out that way. So just to begin with, to realize that it's very hard to imagine that we have this whole body of literature from the Torah on down about how to treat others, but it's so subjective that it all falls away just as soon as we disagree with someone, probably should raise some red flags, probably should give us some question. And especially in our culture where sometimes our Hashkafic convictions or our cultural convictions are so strong that we feel that we can define everyone on a different side of the fence as being separated from Hilchos Ben Adam Lachavero. So just think about what if we're wrong? Just think about what are the consequences? Maybe my Hashkaf is wrong. So uh, the idea that I can pull such a trigger just based on my assessment should also raise pretty serious red flags. So just speaking in a macro sense, those are things that I think we should certainly be thinking about and assume, therefore, that we have to be much more limited in terms of how we would apply these categories. And then the question is, how much is there a need to apply these categories at all, really? Uh, so certainly, so if you want to talk about somebody being called a rush or not, so there's a tremendous literature that assumes that we don't really have Rishayim nowadays and that... Uh, uh, the context that is so confusing to people in terms of the world that we're living in, and anyone is not really receiving a clear message in terms of what the Torah's values are, certainly not getting the message that the way I think about it is the only correct way. So the assumption that anyone who we are vilifying really is 
coming from a position of actual riches. Already the Chazanish spoke about this. Already, already the Chavetz Chaim himself spoke about this. Already many spoke about this. And going back to earlier generations, already Tosa spoke about this. So the idea that we can label anybody in a way that would exclude them from Hilchus Lashon Hara or Hilchus Anos Devarim or the like is very, very fraught from a halachic perspective. And certainly the possibility that our assessment could be wrong is hugely likely. And especially because here again you have a loop, because that's a part of where Lashon Hara comes from in the first place, that it comes from an unfair judgment about someone else. So look how self-reinforcing that is. So I make an unfair judgment about who a person is. And because of that judgment, so now I'm allowed to speak Lashon Hara about them. So it's the, something that could go on forever. So the likelihood that that's true, the likelihood that that's the way you're supposed to behave seems pretty slim. So recognizing just how serious these pitfalls are would seem to be a pretty major step. Now, sometimes issues are very important. So we have to be passionate about those issues, but to recognize, you mentioned COVID, there are other such areas where people are both coming, both ends are coming from areas of seriousness and good motives. And yes, you have to be vehement and strong in your opinion because the stakes might be very high, but it rarely requires vilifying the other person or assuming that it necessarily comes to define the other person's character in the ways that we sometimes let it do in the same ways that it sometimes slips into our conversation and recognizing just what the consequences are for society, the consequences for our own character, for our own neshama and for our own alam haba and thinking about that and then questioning, is it really necessary to get my point across this way? And that probably should help a lot. Not to say that it's so easy to do it, not to claim that I'm any better at this than anyone else, which is an important point to emphasize. We're all works in progress as far as this is concerned. It takes a lifetime to try to acquire that sensitivity, which is, I think, why the study of Hilchus Lashon Hara had such an impact and why the Torah tells us, for example, to remember the incident of Miriam as a separate mitzvah because developing that awareness is a lifelong project. I don't mean to say that it's easy, but having some of those broad realities in mind when we converse probably would make a big difference. I'd like to ask you a practical example, a real life example, and I'm not asking you to weigh in on the specifics of this particular case. That's a separate discussion. But I think it does offer us a good case study of how some of the issues we've been discussing can be put into practice. Some magazines in the Orthodox world have refused for reasons which are noble in their minds not to show pictures of women for reasons of sniut, for reasons of modesty. They say we cannot show even the faces of women, which would otherwise be considered very tsanua, very modest pictures. And a lot of people find this not just unfair and offensive, but actually damaging. They say rather than protecting women, you're actually sexualizing women in a very unhealthy way. And there are many other reasons why people find this to be a very damaging and very bad thing. And full disclosure, I agree, it's very bad. Now, talking about this publicly and discussing this publicly on social media, it can lead to boycotts of the advertisers. It can lead to boycotts not to buy the magazine. The way it's described can be expressed extraordinarily passionately. I want to ask you about the halakhic propriety or the nature of how to do that in a way. If you find something is very, very important, let's say that's your stance. And again, I'm not asking you to weigh in on this, but let's say that that's somebody's stance. They say, this is not only bad, but dangerous. And therefore, we're going to protest that magazine on social media and off social media. We're going to try to boycott that magazine. We're going to try to get people not to advertise in that magazine. In so doing, you are directly affecting the parnasah, the livelihood of the people who run that magazine. And from the perspective of the people who are doing it, that's exactly the point, because they're doing something which is dangerous, and it should not be supported in any way. So 
How does someone balance that? What does someone do in a case like that where there's something they passionately believe and the people on the other side are presumably coming with sincere motives, either because they honestly believe this or they believe that their readers believe this and they don't want to offend them or they don't want to lose their advertisers, even as at the same time, the protesters believe that they are seriously misguided. Yeah. So at your request, I won't address that issue specifically, the one you started with, which has its own dimensions to it and certainly does have many serious issues to be addressed. But in terms of, in general, how to take on these issues that one feels passionately about and one is looking to try to impact. So it's hard to say any one line because you're right, sometimes the impact on society is so severe that there is a need to say, we're drawing a line here and we're not going to be involved with this product, with the service, with this magazine, whatever it is, because they are following policies that we don't necessarily agree with. But at the same time, uh, to recognize that there can be disproportionate effect. So presumably, if we have some way of trying to measure, okay, so what would happen if nobody read this magazine anymore? Nobody supported this individual. So what kind of impact would that have? And does that speak to what I'm trying to accomplish? Or am I even able to accomplish what I'm looking to through that kind of a blunt instrument? And sometimes an instrument is indeed too blunt. And sometimes the issue is so serious and so severe that it needs more of a head-on approach. But as you also noted, probably in all the cases, to recognize that even if I think that this is a terrible phenomenon, and even if I think that, let's say to use your example, that not printing pictures of women is erasing women from society and is going to have a terrible effect on how women see themselves and their ability to reach their potential. So that could all be true. And yet, does that mean that the other party is doing it for that reason? And to label it as intending that effect, is that going to be helpful? So it may be that, yes, I need to impact the market in such a way and say, sorry, I'm not going to read this magazine. I'm not going to subscribe to this magazine because we need to shift how the market responds. And that has often been a way of making a difference in society. But that also can happen without necessarily assuming that the other party is coming from the motives that you are perceiving as the result. It's always the possibility that one can have innocent motives and can have terrible results. And therefore, if there are going to be terrible results, so you may need to act aggressively in order to prevent those terrible results, but it's still possible to do that without assuming that the other party is trying to bring about those results. When we spoke about COVID, for example, so we're talking about life and death on a mass level. There's no question the stakes are huge, but how often was it the case on any side of the issue that the other position was taking the position that they did because they want people to die or because they want society to be completely turned off. Presumably not. So to recognize that far more often than the other way is that people are coming from the same values and the same goals, and there are strategic differences or there's calibration differences, which could be very significant. It could have a, a huge impact. It could be very serious differences in balance and assessment. But recognizing that they're not necessarily coming from a place of different values and you can passionately argue for a different strategy without creating this picture of somebody else that's not fair is very, very important. And I think that's a big part of Hilchus because the tendency that we have to overinterpret and to assume that we can see the whole picture of a person based on an opinion or based on an action, I think that goes to a lot of the question of why there's a prohibition of even saying something true, because we tend to overinterpret things and think that we can really peg someone. And it's also not going to be a 
effective as a matter of debate if we're trying to convince the other party of something and we're labeling them in an unfair way and they know that they know that their motives aren't what we are claiming they are and we know that they're not coming from the perspective that we're pretending or claiming asserting that they're coming from so we're not going to convince the person who we're talking to maybe you'll convince the rest of society that that person is evil but that comes at its own cost for sure and to recognize just even the impact that it has on discourse itself and then that's going to flip back on you so how exactly to keep that in mind and to calibrate as you focus on issues of even extreme importance plays a big role in that decision okay let me ask about something we talked about a bit earlier we used shidukhim as an example but the whole concept of the toela doing something for someone's benefit and speaking about somebody for somebody's benefit I'm curious how you would suggest people use social media for that, because social media is a very powerful weapon, much more powerful than people had in the past, because in theory, you can go and tell thousands of people about something, and some of those people need to know, and some of those people don't need to know. Let me create an example, a fictional example. Let's say I'm working with a particular financial consultant, and he cheated me, or at least in my perception, I'm pretty sure he cheated me. Now, if someone were to ask me privately, should I go to that financial consultant? I would say, absolutely not. Don't do it. And that would be Latoelet. On the other hand, if I use social media to broadcast this, I have the opportunity to prevent people who never would have asked me from going to this particular person. So on the one hand, that's actually very helpful because now more people who might have used this financial consultant aren't going to use him. On the other hand, people who never even thought about using him, who are never going to use him, are hearing Lashon Hara about somebody, or whatever it is, about somebody, and it's not relevant to them because it's, it's not the toilet for them because they're not planning on investing money. Moreover, it might be helpful for me to use social media because I can threaten that financial consultant, unless you restore the money that you improperly took, I'm going to tell everyone about what you did, which is powerful, but once again... It's my own subjective understanding. I can't be 100% sure I know every single thing that goes on behind the scenes. You know, the famous story in the Gemara about when the master didn't pay his slave and didn't give him anything at the end. And all these seemingly ridiculous reasons why it happened, he believed them and they actually turned out to be true in that Nadagadita. So maybe the same thing is true here, even though as far-fetched as they apparently might seem. I'm throwing a lot out right now, though, but how can one use social media safely, litoelet, as a blunt instrument in order to accomplish what you want. I would love to get my money back in this fictional example, but on the other hand, not to violate any laws of Lashon Hara. Yeah, and just to go to the Toelis part, the truth is there are a number of forms of Toelis that are relevant just to, uh, to start from that perspective before balancing it with the other end. So yes, you need to warn people, but your desire to get your money back is also a relevant part of it. It's also something that you're entitled to do, assuming the circumstances support that. And we also find maybe some indications in the Mishnayos and the way Rashi understands the Mishnayos that sometimes we need to have the power of reputation in order to keep people in line, uh, specifically in a business context, that people are aware that even levels of mistreatment that don't necessarily rise to something actionable but if people are going to be talking about it, so that will keep them on the straight and narrow and that will keep them behaving properly. So there's a reality to that, which we do need to preserve and does play an important role. But at the same time, proportion is everything and disproportionate impact is always threatening. And uh, be aware of whether we are coming from a place of sincerity and accuracy because if we've had a bad experience, so it's very easy to think that, okay, this is the whole totality of what the world has to care about. And I have to 
now go after this person because that's all that matters. So to think about it carefully and to recognize whether indeed it's likely that this one episode that you experience really is reflective of larger trends and to think about whether really there's going to be the proper balance of results in terms of what you're doing is always necessary. Theoretically, the fact, and emphasis on the theoretically, the fact that the internet has tools of reviews theoretically could be a good tool because it doesn't necessarily attract people who aren't looking to pursue a certain business or a certain product. So what you rose, what you raised is a problem before that even people who wouldn't be thinking about this are going to hear about it. So if you have a site with reviews, so people theoretically are only going to be looking at it because they have some interest, but again, emphasis on theoretically, because that's not necessarily the case. And unfortunately, I don't think we've really developed a system where the review online review systems are really balanced in either direction. And it's a little bit, especially because there's anonymity. So it's too easy for people to say things without any kind of consequence. And people do have distorted impressions of just how serious something is. And there's also on the other end, there's kind of a great inflation as far as reviews. So anything less than a five-star review will have a negative impact on somebody's business. So personally, I'd be pretty scared about getting involved in reviews because it's hard to be balanced given the cultural expectations that have surrounded them and certainly with the aspect of anonymity and the like. So emphasis on the theoretical part because in practice, I'm not sure if they really are the tools that they could be and they may come with more dangers than benefits. But in a perfect world, there could be a system such as that where there really is a curated and carefully monitored kind of site where people can register their as objective as possible reactions and people who for whom it's relevant who are going to be checking these sites will get something that actually reflects reality i don't know if that actually exists in the review sites that we have today so i'm not necessarily recommending that but i think in theory there could be such a culture that could be created where maybe we could get the results that are relevant and that are helpful and that don't do more harm than good. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I want to move from social media to mainstream media and ask you a little bit about journalism. It could be that you answer this at the beginning by saying that the equation of Lashon Hara with truth is not necessarily so simple, or it's not so simple. But at the same time, I wonder how a mainstream journalist who works for a news site or a newspaper or a magazine can deal with this. We know, on the one hand, that journalists are often heroes. For example, the entire Chaim Walder situation in Israel it only became public because journalists took on the task of revealing it. And that's an amazing thing, which was extraordinarily helpful. On the other hand, journalism, according to its mainstream definition, often involves revealing things that people don't want to be revealed that may not be officially the toilet. It may be technically Lashon Hara. What advice would you give to journalists of how to thread that needle? I know it's not simple, but I think it's important. Yeah, it is important. Journalism, for sure, can have a major positive role on society. And this is something that Ruth Cook wrote about and earlier than him, others wrote about. And it does a lot to set a tone for a society and to address major issues. And in a perfect world, again, in a theoretical perfect world, it could be bringing a lot of benefits. But a lot of the same considerations that apply outside of journalism really do apply within journalism. Also, the question of just how sure are you about what you're reporting? What is the possible impact if somebody is posing an actual danger, like the example that you mentioned? So then there's no question that the urgency is much greater. But even in that case, I believe there was a lot of careful research put into it and a lot of fact checking. And 
there's always a need to really have a high level of confidence in terms of what you're talking about. And the subjectivity is always a problem. And the idea of over-interpretation of episodes and in terms of painting people in a certain light based on one fact in isolation or one opinion in isolation, that's a problem both for the producers of content and for the consumers of content. So those who are putting anything out there have to be especially aware of whether they are perceiving things in a fair and accurate way and in a balanced way. And all the more so, or on top of that, just how likely is it that their readers will see things in a balanced way. So it is a tremendous responsibility. There's no question that going into the field of journalism requires a very strong sense of responsibility and a very heavy awareness of just what the costs are. And it a little bit goes to what we said before about kind of people doing the exact opposite. So I think when it comes to journalism, so religious journalists, when the issues are more obviously significant and when somebody really is a potential predator, for example, so then they tend to take that very seriously. And I think the people, the religious journalists who are involved in those kind of questions will consult and will make sure they get their facts right and will investigate carefully. And more often than not, that actually sometimes ends up to be the easier kind of situation because when it's so clearly important, so then everyone realizes that and they recognize what's on the line and they take it very seriously. But the kind of things that are put casually in newspapers and in opinion columns, when it's not so obvious that there's a danger to society and people don't even seem to think about the fact that there could be a question. And especially in the era of sound bites and misquotations and taking things out of context and the way we assess other people's opinions, when we're not talking about predators, we're not talking about those who are direct danger to others, but we're talking about how you evaluate a quotation or whether you even got the quotation right in the first place. And the kind of things that actually do a lot of insidious harm, but people don't even relate to his questions because they're not they're not addressing things that are so clearly weighty and that have the same kind of obvious significance as when somebody's a predator. So maybe sometimes I think that we should actually focus on the small questions rather than the big questions because people tend to frame it only as big questions. So is journalist permit is journalism permitted? Are book reviews permitted? Are uh, uh, things like that permitted. So it's not a question of the big issue. Is this whole field permitted? It's much more about the details. It's much more about the specifics. And that's where, as the phrase goes, that's where the devil is. And we probably need to focus more on the small questions than on the big questions. The big questions are so tied into the small questions and so tied into the how and the if and the when that that really becomes very, very significant. Okay, well, speaking of small questions, I think to conclude, I once heard a story. Oh. We, we all might have heard a story occasionally yeah. about the Chavetz Chaim, that somebody wanted to go sit at his Shabbos table to hear, you know, what is it like to listen to him talk? And he expected someone who basically didn't say anything. And apparently, according to this tale, the entire Shabbos lunch, he was talking the whole time. He just was careful not to speak Lashon In other words, he expected somebody who would not say a word out of the constant fear of saying something inappropriate. Instead, he found someone who had no problem speaking as much as he wanted, but who had trained himself only to speak properly. That leads me to sort of a large final question about those small things that we say on social media and what we started off with, the positives of social media versus the potential for damaging social media posts. What would you, Rabbi Feldman, as a whole, recommend? Do you think that social media is a net positive such that people should be careful and use it? Or 
Should we instead be like what the person expected to see in the Chavetz Chaim? Disconnect from social media because as much as you try, you're probably going to speak Lashon Hara. You're probably going to say things that are inappropriate. You may end up saying something cruel. It's just not worth it. What's your feeling about the net value of social media overall? So it's hard to speak in broad categories because there's so many different forms of social media and there's so many different contexts in which people interact. And that is, again, the small question that, again, becomes very, very significant. And like we started at the outset, there's no question that there's tremendous benefit to social media. But sometimes within a certain context, it can have a very negative kind of environment. And to be sensitive to that and to be aware of that, you know, Nicholas Carr wrote a book called The Shallows where he wrote something like, it's possible to think deeply on the internet and it's possible to think shallowly when reading a book, but that's just not the kind of thinking each context encourages. So you have to be aware of just what the specific environment encourages. And sometimes it can have an effect on us that is negative or we can realize that we're behaving in ways that we're not proud of and that we wouldn't want to feel actually represents who we actually are. And for everyone, that takes a lot of awareness and a lot of self-awareness and introspection sometimes and constant checking and not assuming that you can coast and that we should just stick with the momentum of whatever has been, but to assess things constantly. And that's true also as consumers. And it's our reality that if we're completely cut off from the sources of information, so we're probably exposing ourselves to harm, to not be aware of what our environment contains and probably society has shifted that way, that there's a greater need to be aware of what's going on around us. But at the same time, it means that there is a greater need to be educated consumers and to be aware of just how there's so many points of weakness in terms of how information is transmitted on social media and on the internet. And in general, we talk about Kabbalah slash Hara, but there's also a difference between Kabbalah slash Hara and Shmiyah slash Hara. We're not supposed to accept slash Hara, but it's not necessarily the same thing as hearing, but normally it's a short jump from hearing to accepting. So it's probably not the best advice to be listening to slash Hara, understanding that it's very likely to lead to Kabbalah slash Hara. But sometimes in our society, it's not so easy to cut ourselves off 100%, given also the potential risks. And therefore, what we need to do is to develop a greater space between Kabbalah slash Hara and Shmiyah slash Hara and recognize that maybe there is an intake that's happening, but then there's got to be a very careful analysis of how much we should actually internalize and what we should do with that information and recognize that there's so much impeding the truth that's going to come through and maybe more so than ever was. And journalism, unfortunately, has probably been affected in a lot of negative ways by the fact that everyone's a journalist now and that newspapers can't afford to stay afloat because there's so much competition from that which is free and untrained and not subject to any checks or balances. So there's a different culture than there once was, and there's a greater need on the consumer to be aware of that and to process that carefully. And there will be situations where it's not worth it, or there will be situations where a certain chat or a certain group is bringing about conversation and interaction and attitudes that are not helpful. And you will recognize that you have to disconnect and find better places and find other ways in which to do so and which to connect. But we mentioned the Chafetz Chaim, so just note that in the story that you related about the Chafetz Chaim, so the name Chafetz Chaim, it comes from a Pasuk in Tehillim, but maybe in a more pointed way, it comes from a medrash because a medrash is found in Chazal in a few places, the Gemara's Midrashim that have this story in different versions that there was a Ruchel, it's an interesting choice of words. There was a peddler who came to Sipori, came to different places, and he wanted to gather a crowd and tell them 
that has the secret to life. And they all come around to see what kind of potion he has. And it turns out he's just reading the Pasuk. So presumably this Medrash, as much as the Pasuk, had influence on the choice of title to say for Chafetz Chaim. But there is a question, there's a lot of analysis, that passage, that the crowd was very impressed by this presentation. And what was the big Chiddush? So we know the Torah has a lot to say about Lashon Hara, and the Gemara has even more to say about Lashon Hara. So we know that there are terrible problems that come from this. So what exactly was the new message that this peddler shared? And there are those who suggest that it's the focus on Ohev Yomim Tov, that it doesn't have to be that it's only that we're terrified to say anything and that everything is terrible and that we're going to be punished hardly if we open our mouths. But you can have a beautiful life, Ohev Yomim Tov, if you recognize how to see things a little differently. And there's tremendous potential for how we can interact in a way that is full of chesed and full of empathy and full of kindness and full of joy and cheerfulness and positivity. And it's not something that we have to run away from if we can focus it in that kind of direction. So this picture that you described of the Chafetz Chaim being very ready to talk in appropriate ways, perhaps that is reflective of the rest of the Pasuk because it's Chafetz Chaim of Yom Tov, that it's not just about what you're not doing and it's not just about running away terrified from any kind of interaction, but recognizing that the beauty and joy of life comes from interacting in a positive and uplifting and helpful way. And that is the secret to being to be able to internalize how to do so in an effective and productive manner. And perhaps that is the enduring message of 150 years after the publication of that Sefer, to recognize that this is something that can lead to beauty and to a wonderful existence. Rabbi Daniel Feldman, that is a beautiful message and a meaningful way to conclude our conversation. I found this very enlightening. There's a lot to think about, a lot of perhaps repositioning in terms of the way we think about certain issues, and you've really helped me think these things through. So thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been The Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.